Hey, welcome to the Product Lab Podcast. I'm Mario Araujo, a B2B growth advisor and interim leader. I was an early adopter and employee of OutSystems and left when it was evaluated close to 10B and later joined software. Uh, you can find out more about me at marioaraujo.co or visit my side project at productledstack.co. Today, we'll have Derek Skaletsky from Cooper with us as part of the PLG Fall Start series that explores the untold stories behind PLG implementations and failures. So we went deep with Derek on a bunch of things and experiences and the learning. So for example, just sharing three, building a PLG motion in a silo and what problems it created for the product team how they set up the wrong sales incentives, and that led to a PLG false start, there you go, and how an early PQL strategy became a big problem. Counterintuitively, right? Because they generated many, many leads for sales. Um, Imagine that, how can that be a problem? As usual, references will be added to the show notes. I invite you to sit back and enjoy this episode with Derek, and I'll see you soon. All right, welcome to today's episode of the PLG Fall Starts podcast, where we share the struggles and the learnings that we've encountered as growth pros along our journey. So first, a disclaimer, right? This is meant to be a healthy reflection on things that did not work so well for many of us, myself included. And I'm always a little bit afraid to be as vulnerable as I've been in episodes, but I'm trusting that people take this as a productive conversation that will help other people in the same situation be better at their job. Today, we're very, very lucky to have Derek, and I'll let Derek introduce himself. Derek, uh, the only thing I will say about you is that you were leading the team of the first solution I've ever considered for, to help with the PLG sales motion, and the term was not even there. So right. um, so anyway, happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. Right. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, timing is a key of life, right? So yeah, thank you so much, Mario. I didn't realize the title of this podcast was actually, what, what was it called? Full Starts. Full Starts, all right, great. Yeah, so I'm Derek Skoletsky. I lead right now uh, product and engineering at Copper. So Copper is a CRM company, been around for 10, about 10 years now, I think. I came to Copper through an acquisition of that product that you just mentioned, which is called Sherlock. So Copper acquired Sherlock early 2021 is when we came on board. So uh, we now have multi-products at Copper. So that was a big change in the Copper history, but that's where I'm at today. I've been you know, a founder of a few SaaS startups, a couple acquired, a couple still going. So I've been in every department founder. I've been run product, now run engineering, I've run CS, and also run sales. So I've seen a bunch of the different uh, perspectives on this new world. Awesome. Awesome. And uh, I've been a fan of Sherlock for a long time. So I, I still recommend it to some folks. Every other conversation I get when people ask, just because of how simple it is. Anyway, no sponsorship here, just pure retribution of some love. So you're going to share with us three uh, short but powerful stories today. And I'm very interested about uh, getting started. So the first one will be about a PLG motion that had some second order effects and uh, would love to hear about that. And then we're going to move on to how the wrong sales incentives can hinder PLG implementation, also with, with a very interesting example. And finally, 
how to go from sales not having enough leads, this is my favorite, to, oh my God, we have so many leads, where do we start? Seems like a good problem to have, but maybe not so. So uh, yeah, Derek, let's start with the first one. Yeah, I think the biggest, you know, when we talk about false starts, I think it's, I always tell companies, it's much harder to transition from a sales-led motion to a product-led motion than it is to go from a product-led motion and layer on a sales motion on top of that. And the biggest problem is, I always say, most problems in life are people problems, right? It's not a technology problem. It's not really a product problem. It really is like, how do you build the organizational operational model behind a product-led motion? And a kind of an analogy that works for me, it's not a perfect analogy, but it's almost like the early 2000s when e-commerce was emerging. And if you were selling a consumer product Mm -hmm. and you historically had sold through distributors, the big box retailers, and all of a sudden you started going direct to consumer from your website, that's fine. You can build the website, you can build a purchase flow, you can build a shopping cart. But if you don't have the operations behind that to support a one-off purchase, it's all going to fall apart, right? If you don't even have customer support to deal with customers directly. You don't even have boxes to put one-off stuff in because you are used to shipping in containers, right? So it's a whole operating model that has to go behind the go-to-market model to make it successful. So, you know, the first kind of false start, the biggest false start I probably had was when this really was seen as a product initiative, right? Oh, we want to do product-led. So that's a product initiative. It makes total sense. Mm -hmm. Product is in the word. So product, you go do your product-led thing. But everyone else do exactly as you've been doing, you know, for years. So we, in a company that's to be remain nameless, we did that. We did a whole product initiative. We redid the onboarding and we simplified a lot of the tool, a lot of the early experience. We really tried to drive people to that aha moment. And all that work was really great. But marketing kept doing marketing stuff and they just kept sending people to sales and sales kept doing the sales stuff and customer success kept doing the post-sales stuff. So there was no coordination of the go-to-market motion beyond the pixels we moved around in product to make mm-hmm. the product easier and simpler to adopt, which that part kind of worked, but it really did not have a big impact on revenue, at least that we could measure. And I'll talk about that in a sec. And it really didn't, it was kind of seen as a failure internally because of that, right? Eventually, what ended up happening is slowly but surely, we started to get more and more people to understand that this is more of a go-to-market motion that involves a cross-functional operation, traditional functions, right? It's a cross-functional operation that needs to layer on top of this to make this motion actually work. So, We've since that time had put together a a seven-person cross-functional team as was like a committee uh, or a council to look at the full customer journey. One of the great things, so marketing started really getting involved in messaging. We had collected a lot of data from these new self-serve trialers that was never being used. And all of a sudden that started started to get used in certain ways in messaging especially, but also in when do you bring in sales to conversations? That started to happen. It also, we layered in an activation team, which was a super important part of that whole experience. So the activation team being people that actually deal directly with trialers to help them adopt the product. So they're there to answer questions. A lot of times you'll see the first thing you do with product led is you take your chat, your intercom chat out of the trial, right? Because we don't want anyone talking to free people who aren't paying us. We don't want any of our humans talking to free customers. So 
we layered that back, we layered that in. We brought intercom in, we brought messaging. So that team actually handles any customer request during a trial to help them adopt. First it was reactive. Now it's much more proactive, or later on it was much more proactive that that work happened. So eventually we started to then see self-serve revenue, which at the time was probably 15% early on of total new new revenue, and it's since become over 40% of new revenue. And now we're starting to re, you know, you start to rethink what is an opportunity for a sales team? What is an opportunity for an account management team? What does this look like in this new motion? That's very different than what it used to look like when you were just sales-led. That's very interesting. And uh, I, I have to say, I don't think I shared this with you. I was having a conversation with Elena Verna, one of the world's most renowned experts in product growth. And we, I, I was like, Elena, I'm going to start a podcast. And she's like, uh, and I'm like, what, what do you think it should be about? And I shared some ideas. And then she goes like, huh? Why don't you talk about failures? Why don't you talk about false starts? And I'm saying this so that you and maybe the team that is listening to this know at least that, well, she said she has never seen, I think she said never, but that most often, I'm going to use most often, uh, most often, every start is a false start as far as transition to PLG is concerned. And I mean, when did you realize the thing was not working? What were the signals that you saw that prompted you to sort of reshuffle and create that committee, that cross-functional committee? Well, it really came down to revenue metrics that just weren't happening on a self-serve, on a self-serve mm. side. A big part of that is because we weren't measuring it correctly. And fair. That will transition later into the, the second topic, which is the sales piece of this. But how are you recording a self-serve conversion versus one that was sales led or sales assisted? Oh, the eternal attribution problem. Exactly, right? So that was a big part of the issue was just really rethinking how are we attributing stuff and how are we recording stuff in the CRM, right? Because that's where you're pulling your revenue metrics from. Yeah, like there's always that it's really easy to judge and to criticize the sales team because, yeah, all those folks care about money and uh, we're in product, we want to make great product, et cetera, et cetera. But in the end, they got to pay the rent. And so they'll sort of move towards survival. But uh, it's, a, it's always interesting to see. You mentioned that the committee, just one quick question about that, that cross-functional committee, because I get asked a lot about that. Who was in there or which teams were represented there? And uh, what was the responsibility of it? So the responsibility was to map out the full customer journey and find all the right and correct motions for messaging and human intervention and using the all the data that's being collected to orchestrate the right journey, really. Mm-hmm. So it was led by product marketing, which was great, which is, I think is a great place to center the leadership of this whole thing. But it also had CS involved. It had a representative from sales. Activation ultimately became part of that as well as product and product design was involved with that. Interesting. Why do you say product marketing is a good leader? Lead gen was also in there. Lead gen was also in there. Lead gen, yeah. Yeah, good reminder. That also makes sense. Why do you say that product marketing is a good leader or why was this the case for in your context? Yeah, I guess, well, I should say you need the right person regardless of title. But in, you know, theoretically, if we're talking about titles, Product marketing sits at a nice intersection of product and customer journey, right? 
and should have the right mindset. It should be the person that has the right perspective on how do we orchestrate this customer journey. But maybe at some orgs, the product, you know, product has the right perspective and the right mentality to orchestrate all this. But for us, it was definitely product marketing and it was the right person to orchestrate that. Plus, it's also product marketing tends to be uh, good at project management, right? Bringing together a bunch of different stakeholders and organizing them and getting them focused on the right stuff and making sure that stuff is moving along. So that was another part of it is to have a nice project management. Yeah, makes sense. So that cross-functional team also had a second effect, at least that I'm seeing, is that you look at the customer journey as if it were the product. It's not just about, okay, I do website, I do product, I do sales. You centered yourselves around the customer journey and did whatever it took to get to whatever you want it to be, which is goes beyond the traditional yeah, thinking, absolutely. I think. Yeah, I think that's totally true. And it was really hard, but really important to really think about the customer in all of this, right? Because more often than not, you're thinking of what is good for our people, what works best for our salespeople, what works best for you know our lead gen people, uh, what makes the CS team's life easier. And we lose sight of, well, but the buyer doesn't want to do that. The potential, he doesn't, he or she does not want to do that. So why would we do that? So you really got to have someone that focus, keeps everyone focused on, well, I get that that'd be easier for you. And I get that would serve your purpose. But our customer has no interest or no idea why would yeah, they would that do makes, that. Uh, that makes total sense. So there was a lot of focus on one tool we use a lot is full story. I love um, it. So we watch a lot of sessions in full story and you can see, you can feel customers' frustration coming through this screen, right? And you say, I know why we did that, but look at when the customer hits that, what happens? Yeah, right? and it, it it's also interesting if you put, sometimes I put the actually executives that suggested an idea or the people that actually proposed an idea that did not work the customer will do a much better job showing what doesn't work. And then it will help us all yeah, put right. our ego aside and say, okay, we were wrong with our assumption. Let's move on. Speaking yep. of which, you briefly touched on, on sales there again, which is a good segue to the next topic, which is um, how you've seen compensation and incentives disrupt this go-to-market motion or the, the rollout of, of a PLG go-to-market motion. Yeah. I mean, not disrupt, but just stop it in its tracks, right? Like that is a big challenge. And you mentioned like we all poo the sales team. I don't poo poo the sales team. We as executives have given them a comp structure that requires them to generate revenue in order to pay their rent. Yeah. So you put them on a commission structure and you pay them a base in which they can't afford to live off their base. And so in order to live and live comfortably or, or succeed, they have to sell, yep. sell deals, right? And what they're commissioned on traditionally is new bookings, right? So that means they want to close as many deals as they can, as large as they can, to go towards their commission and earn their money, right? Be able to pay their rent. Makes total sense. It's not their fault. They didn't make the... If you ask them, what would you want for your comp model? They wouldn't choose this. Most likely not. <laughs> but some exact, you know... They, most likely not, right? The executive team has decided this is how we want to motivate a salesperson. So I don't believe in that kind of model, but I really don't believe in it in sticking with that model 
if you transition to product-led growth. Because what you automatically do is create competition with your salespeople and your product team, which is weird. So they get mad because the product team is trying to build an experience that can drive a good self-serve motion, good self-serve conversion, right? But they don't want any customers to do that because that takes money out of their pocket. The second thing is the product, the whole point of product-led motion is a land and expand motion. The whole point of it is we're going to reduce as much friction as possible to get customers into the product, into the house, and get them to make an initial purchase and eventually grow over time, right? That is the whole kind of impetus of product-led growth. But if you have a major part of your team commissioned on that land piece, and they can only pay their rent if land is as big as possible and goes through their doors, then you set up a real internal problem for your product-led motion. You just can never, you'll just never be able to transition to a really powerful, well-oiled product-led motion with that piece still in place. It's just super hard. And I've seen, you know, I've seen salespeople play all kinds of games to try and combat against that, right? You know, they'll stick their name as the owner on a bunch of accounts in the in the CRM just so that if it does close, it goes to them, right? I've had salespeople that will just email out to trialers and say, don't use the product. It's not that great for a self-serve, you know, make sure you hop on a call with me and I'll walk you through and get you all set up, right? And that's a desperate attempt to try and earn his money and pay his rent or her rent. So I don't blame them at all. It's really... A structural problem with yep. the comp structure that we as executives have put in place for that team. I've seen a follow-up problem to that one, which is sales teams are traditionally optimized for land, not so much expand. And when you shift their operating model, expanding an account is different than landing an account. Right. It's much more a customer success sort of driven motion than it is a, a close this deal motion. And did you see this happening as well? in your reality? No doubt about it. And it is hard because it is different, right? So there are people that are good at land, but terrible at expand. And there are people that are great at expand and have no interest in in the land piece. There's no doubt about it. So it is challenging, but it is a challenge that comes as a built-in part of this model. You have to accept that challenge and try and figure it out. I have a company that I know who did this and saw, had this same similar problem, right? Didn't change the comp model of salespeople. So they were wondering why they were still not getting the, the volume of conversions through. And what he realized was there was a friction point. They made the product frictionless, onboarding frictionless, sign up, get the first value. It's all frictionless. We're taking away all the hurdles. But the sales team still had a land mm-hmm. comp model. So the sales team themselves became a hurdle or a point of friction because they were trying to get as big of a deal as possible, right? No, you don't need a $200 a month. You need a $10,000 account. We'll go annual. We'll da, 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 because that's what they were comped on. That's how they made their money. So common. Yeah, so common. What the CEO did, which I think is really great, is he he wanted them to not close big deals. So he gave them 1x commission contribution for the new, the land, and 2x contribution to commission for any expansion beyond that. So his sales team actually earned more towards their commission on an expansion of an account. So now all of a sudden he flipped on his head and now they're trying to get him as fast as possible. No, start at 50 bucks. Just start at 50 bucks. I'll call you in a month. We'll get you to 2000, whatever. So they were actually, you know, maybe it created, I don't even know if it created different problems, but 
it was a really, it was successful at the time that I was talking to them in terms of driving the right behavior and a cop model that was in line with the business model, the go-to-market model, which yeah, is that makes sense. model. So that was interesting. The other piece is, you know, there are customers that want to talk to sales and need to talk to sales. There are some of those, no doubt about it. And that's where a sales professional is needed. They are needed for customers that have a more complex case that maybe have more stakeholders and decision makers that are bigger and have bigger potential value. And if you're going to do this right, you need a good sales team to help those customers get into, you know, become a customer of yours. Those prospects become a customer. It's just a matter of sales are are used to everything comes through our door to now only some of it comes through our door. And that feels really, really bad, especially when you have a traditional comp model. Yeah, I was going to ask, do you have a sense of while that thing was going on, where sales were trying to actually optimize for land, whereas customers wanted to go through self-service potentially, what was happening to the customer experience? What were the side effects created for the customer? Well, you start to see customers... It comes to light sometimes, This, in my experience, it came to light because you start to see customers complaining about how many emails they were getting, hmm. right? So I have had in another company that was shall remain nameless, where the sales reps took it on themselves to create sequences through some tool. I don't even remember what they used, but right. So now all trialers are getting our onboarding sequences, which the goal of which is to help you adopt the product and get to that aha moment. And now those are coming alongside of just hammering away from a sales team trying to get you on the phone because in the CRM, if they booked a meeting for you, yep. with you, or with that trialer in the CRM, that was recorded as a, as a sales deal, right? So then you start to see why are so many customers complaining about the emails, that all the emails they're getting? And you go, oh my God, what are you guys doing? It's so cool to hear you say that because it feels like you were telling my story, but with your own, with your own experience. Cause I, you know, I, I traditionally work mostly for technical audiences and technical audiences like developers and architects and so on. They don't like to talk to sales so much. And uh, at some point in my career, we were getting people asking, please, please, please stop emailing us. We don't want your emails and so on. We were, well, anyway, same pattern there. And Let's dive in into the, we're almost at the end of the podcast, but I, I'd love to chat a little bit about the, my favorite one, which is um, sales not having enough leads to work on in the beginning. And then going from that to, oh my God, this is too much. What do I do? And I know you, you have a nice story there to share. Yes. Right. So one of the other promises of product-led is more volume, right? So you're reducing friction. So in theory, you should have more volume, which happens, right? So You go from a situation where if everything is fed through the sales doors, you have lower volume. All of a sudden, you open your doors more widely and broadly and allow people in. You have more volume. So you go from a situation where you might be lead scarce to, oh, my God, there's too many accounts. And what you see is you'll see salespeople just be overwhelmed and kind of resign to this idea that, oh, my God, I don't know. I have no idea what to do with this many, you know, 500 accounts a month. I don't know what to do with that. So. That was the piece that we started to understand. This was early on. This is even pre-Sherlock. It's kind of where Sherlock came from was, well, we need some kind of new indication for sales to determine who they should focus on and how to prioritize their efforts. 
So if you are allowing people to try your product before they buy it, then the indication needs to come from their usage of the product. No longer their company size, no longer like the number of times they visited the website, but are they using the product? Did they adopt it? Are they activated? Did they invite a teammate, right? These kinds of product usage are the right signals to help sales determine who they should focus on. That, so early on, we said, well, we're going to set up the very first version of Sherlock was just an internal thing, which was, would ping Slack when certain criteria was met for a trial. It sounds like, you know, commonplace. It is commonplace now, but back in the day, no one was doing this. So we had this Slack channel that would just fire when certain accounts would meet their activation criteria and sales loved it. All of a sudden, you know, they went from looking at this lead list of 500 and don't not knowing what to do to a Slack channel that they said, oh, okay, there's the four I'll call on today. And we knew it was working. We knew it was having an impact because it would break. You know, our little internal tool that we built would break and we'd get the sales team would get mad and they'd start screaming about the Slack channel being quiet for an hour or two. And we'd be like, ah, oh, it broke again. We have to go and fix our little thing. And sometimes we wouldn't get to it for a day or two, right? Because there were other stuff going on on the engineering side. So sales would get really anxious and really mad. And not, not at a point, they didn't know what to do because that was their lifeline, right? So that was when we knew, you know, we were onto something with this idea of how do we bring these product signals to a go-to-market team, whether that's CS that has always really needed, but now sales, now marketing, in a way that's simple that they can understand and is able to feed into the tools that they're using um, and can really help them, you know, bottom line is prioritize and focus on the right stuff. Yeah, that's how product qualified leads and product qualified accounts were born, everybody, uh, <laughs> probably a few handful of years ago. Well, Derek, thank you so much for joining today's podcast. It was uh, a blast having you here. I want to ask you one quick question before you go. Who do you recommend folks to follow? You know, it could be a book or it can be a person that you'd recommend people to follow if they're into learning more about product-led growth. Yeah, I mean, I think the starter is Wes Bush, right? Wes Bush has product-led growth. The Little Yellow Book. The Little Yellow Book. So, I mean, if you're just starting, that's a great place to start. My new favorite is uh, Ben Williams, who is awesome. kind of up awesome there. work. Yeah, Ben Williams, he's been doing growth work for a long time, but he's now really a a more advanced product-led expert, I would say, and he goes pretty deep on subjects. So I, I think he's kind of my new new favorite. All right, good. Thank you so much. We'll be sharing these references, everybody, in the show notes. Again, Derek, thank you so very much for the podcast today. It was great having you. And I guess we'll see each other at some, at some point. Thanks, Mario. Take great care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Product-Led Podcast. If you found this episode helpful, please share it with a colleague or friends you know who might benefit. We are always looking at which episodes get the most listens so we know which content to create more of. So if you want more of this particular type of content or style of episode, please share it out. And in return, here's your selfish reason to do this. Uh, we will definitely create more content just like this episode. And if that's not your style, please leave us a review wherever you listen to podcasts and tell us your favorite part about this podcast. I personally read every single one of these reviews and it gives me more ideas on what content we should do more of. 
happy growing.